This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, your host, and I'm here today with our co-host for this special series, Andrew Davison of the University of Cambridge and a CTI member. Welcome back to the podcast, Andrew. It's great to be back. Today we are for the second episode of this special series on theology and what theology and systematic theology are. We're talking with a friend of ours, a colleague, Douglas Otati. Douglas Otati is the Craig Family Distinguished Professor of Reformed Theology and Justice at Davidson College, a liberal arts college in North Carolina. Before coming to Davidson, Professor Otati taught at Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia for many years. His scholarly interests include contemporary theology and ethics, as well as the history of theology and ethics in the United States. And he's a past president of the Society of Christian Ethics. Doug Otati was a member in the 2016-17 inquiry CTI did on the societal implications of astrobiology, in which, Andrew, you were a participant, so the three of us were all at CTI at the same time. Maybe say a bit about what, what you're excited about for this interview with Doug. Well, I think amongst recent books, there probably isn't any that has such a good section as his recent enormous one-volume systematic theology book. I think there are there's any that I can think of recently published that has such a good section on what it means for theology to be systematic, a really discussion of the his- good discussion of the history of that idea, questions like what order do you treat things in, how are they related to one another, and basically what are the criteria for doing systematic theology well. So that leaves me really interested to hear what he's got to say in this interview, because that would be my go-to 10 or 15 pages uh, if someone wanted to read about the sorts of things we're talking about in this series. And I think that he is interesting because he's amongst the people that we're interviewing. He'd be certainly one who's a bit more on the revisionary side of things. Um, He's someone who's deeply grounded in the history of the Christian tradition, but maybe more than some of our other guests would be especially critical of some of the ways in which it's been expressed philosophically and thinking that needs to be expressed in in different terms where other people I think are going to run probably a bit more with um, some of the traditional ways of doing it. So I think that's also going to be really interesting. He brings something quite different there. Uh, So yeah, both for the depth of of his insight on what it means to write a systematics and because his perspective will bring something a bit different from some of the other guests, um, I'm really um, keen to hear what he's got to say. Well, with that, let's bring Doug in. Doug, it's great to have you with us today. And you have recently published a very large systematic theology in one volume called A Theology for the 21st Century. Uh, on this podcast, which is so much interested in what it even means to write theology systematically, your book has a marvellous section on what it means for Christian theology to be consistent, coherent, interrelated, uh, how how one should arrange the topics, uh, how one should go about writing systematic theology, which is exactly uh, so much of interest in this podcast. So I wanted to pick up on a comment that you make about the way in which theology is taught, that students are quite often walked more sequentially than systematically through topics in, in doctrine, as to say, they might be uh, taught a class on the church, redemption, sin, 
creation and so on, but perhaps without the sense of it joining it all together. And then the other thing that's a staple in, in teaching will be discussions of a variety of methodologies and approaches, often quite interdisciplinary, some with a, a, pro a proper interest in justice and, and activism. But you make a, a very interesting plea for a third approach, which is what you call systematic theology, which I think is distinguished from the first sort of teaching, that it isn't just one thing after another, but quite a lot of attention to how it all joins together. And in particular, you, you link that to the pastoral mission of the church. Uh, and I, I really would like to hear some more about uh, this uh, plea for a, a persistence of teaching theology systematically. Well, I, th I think of it as a very basic and important thing. Uh, let's think a little bit about what pastors do for a moment. And one thing they do is they preach or deliver homilies, and they deliver them to a particular people of God in a particular place. So they need to interpret particular passages in Scripture. They need to relate that to contemporary life. And I think what they're trying to do is to help form a community in a series of beliefs, an orientation, a piety, a kind of manner of life, and they do that over time. So one doesn't deliver just one sermon, one's up there uh, every week and so forth doing these things. And one question then is, how? what's the overall effect of this? Um, surely we're not simply talking about a bunch of disconnected discourses there. Uh, we're talking to some of the same people, we're in a, a particular time and place, and we're trying to get a kind of a handle on what sort of a life uh, ought to be formed. So in part, I think, preaching has to do with the pastoral formation of the people of God, and I think a number of things have to do with that. Uh, I also think that um, that th this comes, comes up in, uh, for instance, catechetical training, uh, and, uh, and and people, um, people, young people joining the church and so forth. The question is how to form them in a life, how they're going to lead, uh, lead a life in a world. A life uh, that is a manner of living needs to have a kind of modicum of coherence, I think. And uh, one of the things involved in systematic theology is it's trying to do that. It's trying not to emphasize sin to the point uh, where we can no longer affirm a good creation or a good creation to the point where we can no longer talk about its corruption and so forth and the need for redemption. These things need to be held together in some kind of a template. So I think one thing is that if one just talks about monographs on particular doctrines, you lose those interconnections. And if one simply trains people in a series of approaches to, they come out knowing a catalog of methods, but they don't really have much sense of the substance of, of the matter. So I think these are two sort of shortcuts in theological education that leave out one major thing. And the major thing they leave out is the coherence of an orientation altogether, a piety and a series of beliefs, uh, a kind of manner of living. And once that's left out, I think, pastoral ministry is shortchanged. I can understand where someone might, as a kind of exercise in religious studies of some sort, simply want training in a catalog of different approaches. I can understand why in that kind of a context one might want simply to concentrate on a particular doctrine, but I don't understand it for pastoral ministry in the church. I think that um, systematics is very important in that way, and in fact it has traditionally been. And it has been a, a, a way of going about things 
that was uh, supported and uh, nurtured in church schools and in ecclesial contexts. Could we say then on the, on the basis of that, that it's about helping those involved in the ministry of the church to have the widest range of resources to bring to any particular moment? That if we, if we put theology too much into various sealed off compartments, then we're actually um, reducing the, the range of, of, of ideas and material that could be brought to preaching in different situations, different sorts of pastoral situations, for instance. Oh, I, I think that's clearly true, yes. And, and, and uh, you know, if, you, if one talks about uh, um, what you're going to do with people who are having some sort of crisis in their life about, about, I don't know, their family life and all how that relates to the way they work and so forth, one presenting thing there is just a question of calling and vocation. But of course, that's not unrelated to uh, the question of how things can be thrown out of balance and how different interests can maybe overtake uh, in an inappropriate way other interests. And that then borders upon a notion of corruption of, and sin. It also borders upon the question of what a good life is. And uh, is, it, is it the case that a good life pursues only one good or does it pursue a, a variety of goods that are held together in some way? Uh, those sorts of questions are all relevant, I think, at that point. So, um, I think it's it's very difficult to go in and, and talk to someone about uh, work life balance, for example, something as something as, as common as that, without drawing on more than one kind of area of theological reflection as one does it. Uh, so that's one sort of instance there. I think it's also pretty difficult to preach on some Bible passages without talking about that. Uh, I think if one says, well, you know, you're going to talk about what Jesus means by the kingdom or something like that. Maybe you're, look, you're at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and we have a, a, a summary statement of Jesus' message. You go immediately into a series of healings and exorcisms. Well, that's one thing that the kingdom means there. It means that you're in a tussle with immediate powers, etc., and Jesus is going to be in that, in that fight for a different kind of regime. But it doesn't. you don't want to reduce kingdom talk in Mark or anywhere else, I think, only to healings and exorcisms. So you want to have that sort of notion in the background. And then there's the small question that's not really a small question at all as to how the birth of a newborn king immediately leads to tensions with, with political authorities and so forth that do nothing but continue to be exacerbated and come to a, come to a kind of head in crucifixion. All of these things are involved in talking about uh, kingdom language. And I, so I think it's hard to reduce it to simply one monograph, even in the preaching. Just as you wouldn't want to leave the church out of discussions of kingdom, but neither collapse the kingdom simply into the church. I think that's right. Wouldn't, 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 that, wouldn't that be a, a real problem if someone came in and simply identified the kingdom with the church? That would be, well, I mean, it wouldn't be like any church I ever attended, but perhaps someone can make that sort of mistake. I, it, it, would, it would be a, a tragic mistake, really. And on the other hand, if you didn't link the church to the notion of the kingdom, to the sort of life that's supposed to be taking place there, to what it means when people look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others, and cetera, like that, as you have in Philippians, then, you know, you're really going to lose a kind of sense of what the church as a community is supposed to be. It at least anticipates, however fragmentarily, 
the kingdom in some way. So one wants to say all of those things when one's talking about the church. And I think if one does, you know, then you can say, well, okay, I, I, I go to this church and I see a bunch of people there and I know some of them pretty well and I don't know others of them very well and I'm not sure I want to know them all. So it's not exactly the kingdom of God and we're not at the great heavenly banquet quite yet, but we get a little practice. We have to put up with each other part of the time and we do it on a kind of on a regular basis, and we try and do it in a way that's attentive to sacraments and to what it means to be in communion with God and with one another, so we give it a shot. And I think that's an important sort of sense of what you're doing in a church. If you go in there and expect the kingdom of God, you know, you're going to be disappointed. And I, I think I think churchgoers are regularly disappointed in their churches that way. They go in there and think, well, this is actually a little boring and perhaps not all that significant part of the time. But that's okay. Uh, it's not yet the kingdom, and it needs to sort of point toward and anticipate. We hope that there's good good qualities and so forth, but they shouldn't, I think, go there expecting everything to be perfect and ideally resolved. And that's an important thing, too. So if we're keeping a doctrine bingo card, then I know that you've already brought, uh, brought eschatology into that uh, combination of doctrines. Eschatology goes into that combination. I don't see how one's going to separate these things off. So what I thought, you know, years ago at Union Seminary, we had a two semester long sequence in systematics. I thought that was the basic thing to do in theology with people training for ministry. And so you went through a whole, the whole, a whole round of doctrines and you read major texts on the things. They were introduced to a tradition, they're introduced to the doctrines and also the ways in which those might interrelate. There are plenty of other important things done in theology at the seminary at the time, but I think that was the spine for the thing. It drew on the other sorts of training in, in monographs. It, do, it drew on classes, say, simply in Jonathan Edwards or something like that, and in particular figures. And it tried to put something together that could orient someone in ministry and so they could continue to think through that orientation and no doubt modify it as they go along. So to summarize something that you've been uh, saying there, and I think it's distinctive about your approach, is that actually, it, the, the church and its pastoral ministry and preaching and the, uh, is, is what you really lead with in terms of the importance of systematics. In fact, you say, from an academic perspective, one might just think about methods. But actually, if you're involved in the work of the church and its life, that's, that's when you all the more need to see how uh, it hangs together as a coherent whole. Nonetheless, you have also written this big academic uh, monograph. And so I was wondering, from the perspective of what makes your presentation of systematic theology distinctive, have there been particular connections between doctrines, particular places where you think your approach is shaped by seeing things as in proximity to one another that perhaps another author wouldn't stress in quite the same way? Well, I mean, I think maybe many authors will see different interconnections. What I've tried to do systematically is key my systematic to an image of God as creator, redeemer. So then the idea is if you've got a good creation, but you have redemption, something has to have gone wrong, right? I mean, otherwise there's no such thing talking about redemption. So you go to a third point then, and the third point is corruption, sin, and, ju and judgment. So you get a kind of picture of God as creator, judge, redeemer, but you do it on the access of creation and redemption, judgment in the service of something more fundamental 
called redemption. So this is the sort of thing we want to say. Uh, that's going to mean then that I this is a specification in my understanding of it, of God as the God of grace. And I, I need to develop that in a variety of different ways, but basically to say that creation is a donation, a gift, uh, a, a bestowal, and redemption is a donation, a gift, and bestowal on the part of a God who will not let uh, God's creation go off simply uh, toward uh, inevitable destruction and corruption and doesn't just let it go. So that gives you a kind of a template then for a God of grace. That really ends up being the spine on which this thing is constructed. Uh, So if I want to talk about what human beings are like, then human beings are, are, are limited, good, distinctively capable creatures. They're also, um, they're also corrupted and chronically so, and they also benefit from bestowals of grace and renewal and new possibilities. All of these things are true at the same time. I think when Gerald Ford was president in this country, people used to wonder whether he, he could walk and chew bubble gum at the same, chew gum at the same time because he had he took a couple of falls. It was really unfortunate because he was one of the best athletes ever to be in the White House. It had nothing to do with the actual man, I think. But you do have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time if you're going to hold these things together. You can't simply talk about judgment and sin and have a complete picture of human possibilities and limits. You can't simply talk about good creation. So it's set up that way, and this means that those things, from my point of view, are always in interrelation with one another, always in interconnection. Um, I, I think probably for a lot of theologians, eventually things are an interconnection. Uh, I'm not sure they all key it to uh, images of God per se. That would be a difference I would have with some of them, I suppose. Maybe it's a typically Reformed and Calvinist emphasis. I don't know. I tend to think that theology is discourse and reflection about God or the gods and things in relation to God or the gods. And so I think almost any good theologian finally keys things to a kind of specification of God. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I want to hold those, those sorts of things together. It's different than writing a monograph. Uh, it's different than preaching a sermon. I like to do monographs uh, to some extent degree, and, 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 I, and I enjoy preaching if people will put up with me. But I, I think here what we're trying to do is, is get these interrelations uh, uh, set up and to key them to a notion of God or an image of God. Doug, you've written a book, uh, well, two books, actually, I want to mention previous books. One, Theology for Liberal Protestants, 2013, and then prior to that, uh, Theology for Liberal Presbyterians, and comma, and Other Endangered Species, I think was the title. So a funny title there. So I I think the... um, your kind of identification with the tradition of liberal liberal Protestant theology is fairly clear. Uh, One of the things Andrew and I were discussing is that sometimes there's a critique of systematic theology that it's by definition a conservative enterprise. It's trying to conserve this tradition. It's sort of welded to certain doctrines or it's dogmatic in some bad nature. Uh, How would you respond to that critique? And then I have a follow-up. Sure. Well, I mean, Josh, you know, I think one thing is just a historical point. Like, who's written systematic theologies and what are they like and how conservative do they really look? Uh, Some of them look conservative, but I I don't really know exactly what 
the antecedents are for Origins de Principis, and I think no one really does. Uh, there, there, there's stuff at the catechetical school in Alexandria, and Clement apparently had something similar that he did. But, you know, look, from my point of view, when you open up De Principis, you know, you're in for a really sort of interesting ride. You're going to ask whether or not the moon has a soul. Now, look, I, may, maybe that's being conservative. I, I kind of doubt it. And, and, and there, there, there are all sorts of questions that he's entertaining that people are raising at the catechetical, catechetical school. They're being trained to be leaders in the church. They have questions. So I think the, the idea that, that theology is, is simply repeating stuff without answering questions and without trying to interpret things for a contemporary age is really kind of a bad idea. I mean, I, I don't really see... I, Probably somebody out there tries that. Sooner or later, there's somebody out there to try anything. But but this is not generally what happens in these sorts of things. In a catechetical school, th th does the moon have a soul? Well, okay. That, 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 that big question at the time, perhaps not the one that we're asking now. I, I there are other things. Now then, let's go to some other sorts of systematic presentations. I I think one could say that 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 uh, Thomas Aquinas' Summa, you know, is is sort of like the kind of model systematic, even though it's unfinished. Even and look what happens. He writes it for he thinks beginning students in in, in theology in the church, perhaps overestimating their abilities, as I believe Chanu uh, wondered that he may have. Uh, but on the other hand, look what he's done. He's writing something for people to train leaders in the church. He he reads Aristotle, who's on the ban. From a certain point of view, he's not even supposed to be reading them. He's having debates with uh, with, with people in his arts faculty there, you know, uh, Siger of Brabant and so forth, on the eternity of the world, where Siger is simply sticking with Arist with with uh, Aristotle and so forth, and 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 Thomas is not. He's doing all sorts. He's employing a new method for how to set things up, the Quaestio method. This is a remarkably innovative piece of work, and he's not simply repeating what went before. When he uses Aristotle's uh, logic of causes and so forth to talk about things and to order his the arguments for existence of God, again, it's a creative move. Calvin's Institutes, you know, probably the most systematic, in, in quotes, presentation of the Reformation is, I think, in many respects, a, a quite creative thing in, 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 the way, in the way that it proceeds. And it doesn't simply repeat what's gone before. Now, do they leave a tradition behind? No. So there's always a conservative dimension to a systematic, but a systematic is not simply a conservative. It's a little bit like handing on the faith to subsequent generations. You want to hand on a connected body of doctrine and a kind of manner of life, but you want to do it today and now. And anyone who has any children or ever have been around with knows that when you try to present something that's been around for a while to someone new and to someone in a new place and time, that's a creative and, and dynamic effort. And that's also being involved here. And just the last thing there, I mean, think of something like, like Schleiermacher's um, Glaubenslehrer. I, I mean, I get accused of thinking that's the greatest thing since air all the time, and I don't really think it is, but you know that that's another matter. That's a very creative thing. He's reconfigured, uh, re reconsidered what he thinks theology is and all of these sorts of things. Uh, Paul Tillich's systematic theology, making use of existential philosophy and so forth, set up, a, a, wants to reopen the doctrine of the Trinity, as also Schleiermacher had wanted to do, and, and, and making all sorts of different sorts of moves there. I don't think of these things as inherently conservative. 
I think of them sometimes as very dynamic and trying to meet a circumstance and an intellectual circumstance and other things. I do think that they always have a conservative dimension. And the conservative dimension is that they are written by people who know that they're working with a tradition and they're not the first people to come along to think about these things. I think Origen knows that too. And so even when Origen is introducing all kinds of, you know, I don't know, allegorical interpretations of the Bible and asking about the souls of celestial bodies, uh, he knows that he's working with a tradition and with a, and, and with a biblical witness, and he's doing a great job. So I think, things you... I think it's a reductive understanding of systematics to say that. And I think sometimes when, when, when some people yeah. do it, they're... They have a kind of polemical reason because they want to work another way or something like that. Right? One follow up on that, and then I'll turn back to Andrew. Is one of the things you note in it's either in your your newer book, Living Belief: A Short Introduction to Christian Faith, or the the tome, A Theology for the Twenty First Century, your one volume, Systematics, and you probably mention it in both. Is that you see Systematics more oriented toward the questions that come up as opposed to clear answers. Another word you use, which is very favorable at the center of theological inquiry is it's about inquiry on certain questions. So it's the questions that are endure even as different answers. What struck me about that is of course, that has to be the case because otherwise there'd be no reason for systematics to continue to exist. We could just have it one for once for all and just keep reading the same book forever. I think that's true. And, and, and so I think when you look again, I, I don't why Origen should end up being my favorite guy this morning. But in any case, you know, if you look at De Principis, there's a wild set of questions that are being asked. And, 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 he, and he is trying to respond to those things. Um, I think if you look at the way that a, that, that a catechism is ordered, even, even one that maybe some of these longer ones that are probably put together in part to put people to sleep. But, you know, they, they, they do have a question answer format, right? And that remains the case. Uh, if we ask about the, uh, the antecedents for the Apostles' Creed and some of the local creeds in the churches in the Mediterranean, classic Mediterranean period, it is really a set of, 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 of catechetical uh, interrogations and questions and so forth. So the idea that you're responding to questions and that questions hang in the air, I think is a very, very important one for systematics. And I'll just say one last thing. Uh, oh, a million years ago, when I'm going to uh, confirmation classes in Tenafly, New Jersey, at a place called, prosaically enough, the Presbyterian Church at Tenafly, where they really had to think of that for a while. And they, so I, I go in there and I, ha I had a, an, an associate minister named Mike Joe Sand who taught that. And uh, we didn't do catechism in a traditional sense, but we did talk about questions. Uh, about questions of, of the tradition and faith and questions of life in the world. And in that respect, I think he was a genuine heir to this kind of tradition of theological reflection. And so I think that's always true, uh, that, that questions are, are key, key things uh, that, that take place. So one last thing, if you're ever teaching an introduction to Christianity and Christian faith to a bunch of precocious undergraduates somewhere uh, who maybe have some religious background and some of them don't even know how to spell the word religion, never been inside of a, of a, a church or a synagogue or a mosque in their lives. I think one thing that's your friend is, is to relate the thing to questions. They have questions. People have questions. And that, I think, has been one of the insights of the tradition in systematics and in catechetics uh, through the entire tradition of the church. 
Doug, one of the questions that has been on my mind as we've been working our way through this podcast series is about how theology looks on the page or the different ways it can be approached as a literary endeavour. And I think it's one of the characteristics of your book, if I might say so, but it is really beautifully written. I think that you've laboured over the prose and it's, uh, it's a joy to read. And we had Janet Soskis on recently and she's also been a great advocate of the importance of thinking of theology as a literary exercise, um, not least for the sake of its reach uh, and you know, commanding an audience and readership. Mm-hmm. So there's some comments in your book, A Theology for the 21st Century, about modes of presentation. At one point you say, systematics isn't the only way of doing things, there are also fragments, monographs, commentaries, and sermons, all of which have an important place in the life of the church. And then you quote Schleiermacher saying that one can approach theology through monographs, something like a series of theological short monographs, perhaps, and theological topics. And then he says that a full systematics where you're trying to not miss things out and see how it all hangs together. So um, there's a series of, of genres, fragments, monographs, collections of monographs, full systematics, commentaries, uh, sermons. We might add the essay, which has historically been beloved of, of my own Anglican tradition. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, the, the different ways in which systematics in that lineup can be written from a literary perspective or even what it can look like on the page. So you make a, a fascinating comment about that, that the 1559 edition of Calvin's Institutes was printed with deliberately broad margins so that it could be used as a textbook. That brings in all sorts of great questions about forms of interaction with texts. Uh, but maybe we could start with your, your own book and some decisions that you've made about how to lay it out. It has quite extensive footnotes. There are some passages of small print and you, uh, you pepper it through with, let me get the right word, I think, um, are they propositions? Number right. of propositions, um, which, which uh, yes, which, uh, by which it, 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 uh, it's, it's ordered. So if we just think about what, what you've written, what decisions did you have to make about what it looks like on the page and how has that been important for your process and what you wanted to achieve? Well, I, th- I think that's a very important question. Um, and let me try and answer it by bringing up two related things. Um, one is that the st- I mean, the style in which you write and even the appearance of the page and, and, and the way you go about it needs to be ordered, I think, to, on the one hand, the importance of a kind of coherence and interconnection, a sense of interconnection for a systematic. So a systematic needs that. It needs that um, in, the, in, the, in the appearance of the page. It needs that in the development of a vocabulary. So I think, for instance, if one says, you know, the, the, the great God of glory is the good God of grace or something, it is some line I came up with years ago and I'm lecturing to students in Richmond. Uh, you know, you, if, you, if that turns out to be one of the things you want to say, that line can be repeated at different points a little bit. And you want to talk about the God of grace and so forth. Uh, it's important that the vocabulary uh, communicate a kind of coherence and a, and a sense of interconnection. When you get to um, the stuff about propositions, I think some people think of propositions as atomizing, 
But I think that if you write them in a certain way, they interconnect and they show people where they can go to see the interconnections. And so I think that uh, propositions are in some respects helpful. I also think that's been a, a kind of a uh, a kind of a tacit agreement amongst a number of systematicians. So um, Thomas's Quaestio method gives you certain questions that you go through and then statements, and it's organized in a way so that you can go to particulars and ask how they are presented and relate them to other particulars. Uh, Calvin retains a bunch of section headings in the institutes uh, all the way through. Uh, Schleiermacher has propositions. Um, and, you know, Karl Barth for, I mean, I know the Bardians always want to claim that he doesn't do these sorts of things, but last time I looked, and I've got a couple of volumes of his somewhere here, I don't know what I've done with them, but, you know, you, you do end up, you do end up with these bold type uh, things in them, and, they're, you know, he's a certain kind of a guy, so when he writes on the vocation of man here, he doesn't have so much a proposition as a paragraph in bold, in bold type here at the beginning of that. But in fact, this paragraph does tell you what's going to happen in the exposition as he proceeds. It, it's, it's number 71 in here um, in, uh, in Church Dogmatics 4.3, second half. And it's a, a magnificent way to proceed. So I think there has been a kind of an agreement amongst a number of different theologians that the propositions are helpful and not necessarily atomizing. Now, that's one. So there's a question of coherence. And that, that goes to, your, to the, the vocabulary, to the layout on the page, and so forth. Now we go also to the question of audience on this kind of a thing. And uh, that will have to do with the kind of vocabulary and the layout of things and what goes into footnotes and how you operate. I think that systematic theology is something that's supposed to be keyed to training the leadership of the church. Now, I think the leadership of the church is plenty intellectually accomplished, but I don't think it's the same thing as simply writing for a bunch of other PhDs and scholars all the time. Uh, I think that we're talking about people who get master's degrees and so forth and are going to be pastors and they're good, intelligent people. And you, this ought to be written in a way so that it can be read, read by and understood by, uh, by, by people um, who, are, who are engaged in that kind of training. So I'm a little worried that um, systematics and theological studies in our own time has gone too far over to a bunch of, uh, of just PhDs writing for other PhDs. I'm a little worried about that. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, I want there to be uh, genuine content. So that means I'm trying to, I don't know how much I succeed, but I'm trying to adopt a literary style that is that delivers content, but is not, um, not pinheadedly technical so, so, so that people can read it uh, who are not necessarily going to be specialists in that sense. Uh, then I think this means then that you're also talking about uh, um, uh, what should go in there and how to arrange it. You're going to need some footnotes that are explanatory if you don't want to almost murder people with the kind of technical discussions in, in, in the body of the text. Uh, the, the, the small print sections, Andrew, I wanted to have more of those. My publisher wanted me to have not quite as many as I had. You know, Bart has them and so forth. That was, again, an effort to say if you hit one of those fine print sections, you could 
stop reading at the last large print section and skip to the next large print section and you'd still be in the game. Now, I, I don't know how, you know, maybe not thoroughly in the game, but still in the game. And you didn't have to slug through all the particulars uh, in, in, in the fine print. And I think that's a, another kind of a attempt to make it readable for a, a, a range of people and not just for other PhDs. And so also with the explanatory footnotes. Last thing then about the, the, the margins, and I could wish for them to be larger in this thing than they are, but it does have some margins. But, you know, there are, cost, there are cost factors that people are also concerned about. Um, it is the case, of course, that, that with gloss, glosses on medieval texts were, were a, a great way for people to learn and to work in libraries. And eventually those glosses would sometimes make it into some of the texts and so forth like that. I think that a textbook, a book that what people are trying to learn something, follow arguments, should be something that they write in. And it should be something that they are able to uh, uh, put in a kind of notation system so that they know what they think was particularly significant or not in the way that they want to proceed and that they can write in questions and so forth. And I think of that as a very, very important feature. So reading a book really ought to be a kind of interactive thing. And one of these books ought to be an interactive thing where someone is thinking through, my goodness, you know, how do I think theologically? And what is this guy saying over here? And does it really make any sense to me? And what seems important or not? Or what's a turn of phrase that I think maybe I can use uh, and, and, uh, or, or modify helpfully uh, in a ministry and in, 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 in some way in churches and to talk to people? So that's the kind of thing I think is true. So the way it appears, I think, is a big deal. Uh, I do think that Schleiermacher is right to talk about interconnections, and I think he's right to say that those connections in the end are in some sense organic rather than simply mechanical, and that's because it, has to go, it goes to a life. But I think though he says that, he is not the only theologian who thought that, and, and I, I think it's impossible to read Augustine without thinking that what's, what we're really talking about then is, is a set of affections, a manner of living, that has to do with affective and intellectual dimensions and so forth, and that the relationship uh, between the, the different things being said is in some sense organic because it has to do with an actual beating life, you know. So I, I think that's the kind of thing that's true for a lot of good theology. Following up on that, Doug, I'm, I have a question that's sort of biographical in nature, but also about your view of sort of institutions and the way that they relate to systematic theology. You taught for many years, as you kind of mentioned earlier, at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and then about 15 years ago or so, you moved to Davidson College, a liberal arts, a very fine liberal arts college in North Carolina. And you've continued to do systematic theology in that liberal arts college context, which is a wonderful thing. And I, I certainly would um, advocate for as many universities as possible to continue uh, teaching and, and uh, instruction in theology. That said, I wonder, given the examples you've given, people, you know, early theologians like Origen, also Augustine, um, systematic theology was not always in the, the context of higher education, whether we're talking about a seminary education and divinity school or a university education. It existed to some extent, you know, beyond that, before that even existed and, and so on and so forth. So I, I wonder, given what's all going on with universities, there's so much hand-wringing, there's a crisis of the humanities that people talk about and so on. Is there an extent to which systematic theology should begin to 
and you sort of suggested this, that you're not so happy with theologians who only write for other academics or for other PhD students. Does systematic theology need to try to become more independent of certain sort of higher educational institutions to sort of not be captive to it in some way? How would you respond to that? Josh, I think that's a pretty interesting point. Um, I think it shouldn't uh, allow itself to become captive only to one particular sort of institution. Uh, I think broadly construed, it's the sort of thing that can happen in adult Sunday school classes and can happen uh, in classes with undergraduates and can happen in classes at seminaries that are training people to become ministers and priests and uh, can also take place uh, in PhD seminars. So I think it, it should run the gamut. In a sense, I think of all of those things in a broad sense as related to, in a way, the life of the church or the Christian movement. That is, all of these things have a place uh, and, and have traditionally and should continue to have that place. Um, I think that in terms of some of the context today, there's a little bit of a problem and, and maybe more than a little bit of a problem in some American seminary education. You know, American seminary education has tended historically to emphasize a bunch of how-to stuff in the Bible. That's really been its, that's been its strong suit. That's what it's tried to do a lot. It's a little reductive, but you know, there, there it is. And so, you know, you want to read the Bible a lot and then you want to know how to run a meeting. You want to know how to do this and how to counsel and how to do that. Uh, you will notice that theology, systematics, is not one of those things. And so sometimes it's been a weaker sister of, uh, of, of theological education in this country, and I think that that shouldn't be the case. Uh, I think it sometimes also has been separated overly much from questions of counseling, questions of what to do with people in their lives, and it's been separated overly much from ethics, which sooner or later almost everyone... You know, almost everyone in theological education in America believes they're an ethicist, whether they've ever really taken the time to think through a particular moral problem or not. That's just one of the things. But I, th I think that, that uh, uh, it, it's, it's sometimes been marginalized in those ways. It shouldn't be. It, it shouldn't be for in theological education for some of the reasons we've already explored that have to do with the training of people for the church and formation of the people of God and so forth. I think it shouldn't be neglected in a liberal arts college. And now I'll tell you what I think about that. I mean, I, I, these days there's a big brouhaha about what religious studies is. And, and I don't think it's going to anytime soon. There are a bunch of different definitions and no one can agree. And, and no one can really agree on what religion is. That's okay. So the, the effort to define religion is what I would call a magnificent failure. Uh, it, it's a failure in the sense that no one, you never get complete agreement. It's magnificent in the sense that you learn things along the way. So, so I, I think that's good. Um, but one of the things that happens in religious studies now is you've got a bunch of people who think, well, we should just have a sociological approach. We have a historical approach or this approach, that approach, that approach. Maybe it's a, a phenomenological approach and there are hierophanies everywhere, like for Eliada or something like that. I, and, 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 you know, there are all these different approaches out there. It's fine. But one of the things that they ought to be very careful about, I think, is that they not neglect what is, in, in effect, a systematic theology tries to do in a Christian tradition and other cognate things try to do in other traditions, which is to hand on a portrait of human life in relationship to God or the gods or the divine uh, in, a way that, in a way that can order a life. 
that really is some of the basic business of all these religious traditions. And if you study religion, but you have no one who knows how to make those arguments in a particular tradition, you have no one who can trace how it is Thomas Aquinas is not just a product of 13th century society somewhere, but in fact has these intellectual arguments being made and, and it is, is, try, is trying to make some sense out of stuff. Well, then hell, you're not going to understand a thing at all. And one of the things that's going to happen is religious studies is going to end up not understanding the basic stuff that happens in religious traditions, whether we can define quite what a religion is or not. And, and, and that's the sort of thing I think that can go wrong in religious studies today. Let me just say one thing then about humanities. I think that humanities, which are in deep doo-doo these days, of course, I, one of the big things of them, of course, is, is that you study images or portraits of what it is to be human. And since you are a human who's studying them, it's self-reflexive and self-involving. So if I read, you know, I don't know, Charles Dickens on a Christmas Carol or something, you know, there's a bunch of stuff being presented there, assumptions about what it might be to be a good human being. Now I come from Tenafly, New Jersey, out there people are, you know, their hair slicked back and all that kind of stuff. Okay, what do I think of that? I my I have an understanding of what's human, more or less, and pretty, I can be in dialogue with Dickens on that point. Maybe it'd be better if I did it in in hard times or something. Uh, another one of his novels, rather than simply the novella. There, uh, but that happens when you read literature. I think it happens when you look at different portraits of family life in different cultures. Why is a family ordered a certain way? What are the assumptions about what a good life is that are built into different family structures? They don't have to be my assumptions that I assume they'll overlap a little bit part of the time, but they may not be reduplicated at all. You can raise that question. What sorts of assumptions about human life in the world, its possibilities and limits are involved in a political structure? Why do you have checks and balances anyway? Uh, why do you not give all the power to any one person? What's the point of having a parliament and a Republican movement and not just a king? Why, why, why do people do these things? What does it assume about power and people to do that? Well, you can raise all of those questions. Now, theology, Christian theology can help present a portrait, an image of what it is to be human in relation to God and others, and it can be brought into conversation with other portraits. In that sense, it can be a part of a vibrant discussion in humanities that ought to be taking place when we're reading literature, when you're looking at political, um, uh, political uh, structures, when you're looking at family structures and so forth. And that, I think, is a way to position it. So when I teach it here, you know, I've got a course called Being Human, and it gives you a, a bunch of things in, in biblical texts and some theologians and some philosophers, a little bit of Charles Darwin, you know, heck, with, we'll throw in Albert Camus if we have to in there. Uh, but the idea at every point is to raise the question, what in terms of the text is it to be a human being and what might it be to be a good one? And can you begin to compare the things? And I think that is sort of the bread and butter of a liberal arts humanities education. And I think theology can be a vibrant participant in that. That seems exactly right to me and reflects my own experience uh, in, in Cambridge, where so many of the other faculties are in really lively conversations with people from divinity. So medieval and modern languages, for instance. Yeah. People really want to talk about the substance of Christian theology in the Middle Ages, uh, especially uh, there's a great concentration on work in da uh, Dante, for instance. Yes, yes. Also in English, there have been some terrific seminars that 
really want to cut to the, the chase of the, the, the substance of what Christian systematic theology has had to say about, what it, as you say, what it means to be human, the world, uh, and, and so on. Uh, even to the point that there's now a new degree between social anthropology and divinity, where people who start in either faculty can then move to the joint degree, which is very unusual for Cambridge, uh, after the, from the second year onwards. And this is, uh, but well, we have a, a lively, uh, great anthropology um, concentration in the divinity faculty, but maybe it's even more the anthropologists saying, uh, if people are going to understand religion, think about religion anthropologically, then they, they want the, the systematic theology courses to yep. understand the, the nature of, um, I, of these I, beliefs. So it's maybe paradoxical that you end up with the least place for systematic theology, sometimes from the religion part of a religion department. Uh, whereas I'd rather see, I think, every religious tradition have, have both. I mean, both study it from a religious studies perspective, but also have constructive work in Islam, Judaism. I think that's um, exactly right, Andrew. Well, and I, what I try and argue for here, not necessarily very successfully, is to have what I call a mixed religious studies department. That is, that involves a variety of, quote, descriptive or somewhat descriptive, and then some normative approaches in terms of theology and theological ethics. And I think those things, even if you can't hold them together at all points entirely successfully, theoretically, though I think there are ways to show that it helps to do them in proximity with one another, uh, um, that, that that's a better way of going about the business. And I also think that it's really true that you have a number of other colleagues that are interested in these things. And the other last thing is, this is a church-related liberal arts college where I teach now. And, you know, liberal arts and humanities in particular are under fire. And I think one of the things that might help them a little bit is to concentrate a little bit on this question of, a portrait of human life in relation to others, in relation to God, in relation to all these sorts of things. That is something that can inform a life in the world in your many roles and, 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 and callings and vocations. It can inform why you go into a profession and how you understand the profession, but it's not the same thing as simply pre-professional education. And in a liberal arts college, you live or die on the basis of whether or not you can talk about a meaningful education that does not re does not reduce simply to pre-professional things. It should be it should support them. It should be related to them. I'm for the professions. I don't mean to say otherwise, but I think that's exactly right, Andrew. We're closing these interviews with uh, three or about three brief questions, kind of lightning round for you. And the first one is: Who is the theologian who's had the biggest impact on your work? I, you know, I've got a pantheon of, of favorites, you know, in, in, in some respects. And, and I, I'm That's a cop-out. You can only have one. Right <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, I know it is. I mean, I, I've taught stuff on Calvin's Institutes, I don't know, on and off for 30 years. Huh? Mm -hmm. But I, I've also done that with Edwards, and uh, that's been helpful to me. And I've done it with Augustine, though I'm no Augustine scholar. I mean, sort of a selection, a selective on that sort of stuff. Uh, those would be some of my, my my real my real favorites. There, I spent a lot of time reading Karl Barth, uh, a very very illuminating person to read and a wonderful writer. I really enjoy him. I'm not going to imitate that, but you know, I'm not I'm not from Switzerland either. It's a different period of time. Uh, I, so I find a whole bunch of these uh, theologians really magnificent to read. 
and, and I also like to keep reading critics, you know, uh, Feuerbach a little bit. I, I, I think Ludwig Feuerbach is waiting for us all around the corner somewhere, and we better think it over before we get there uh, and, and that kind of thing. So I really like a lot of them. But I suppose if I had to reduce it to a, a few favorites, then it would probably be, I, just, I, I worry about leaving people out, Augustine, Calvin, uh, uh, and uh, um, Edwards, maybe maybe Luther in there somewhere, huh? Something like that. No. If you were to recommend one book of theology to a, let's say a beginner or someone in their second uh, step after being a beginner, what would it be? One book. One book. I can I can do it uh, in, in terms of my own biography. The trouble is, it's dated. Um, when I was coming up uh, a long time ago in, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, Van Harvey taught a course, and we read these single-volume things, uh, and we read uh, Paul Tillich's The Courage to Be. Um, it had never occurred to me that uh, a theologian could write a book like that, uh, that was trying to talk about leading a life. Hmm? Uh, Tillich is not finally my favorite theologian, but that was a great book. Um, there were other books like that, but you say, and even in that course, but if you say to limit to one, I, I won't bring them up. But I would say but, uh, Martin Buber's I Am Thou was, was, was pretty damn good, too. So books like that, I think. Would, would and what are you reading right now? Who am I reading right now? Oh, I'm rereading a bunch of Edwards because <laughs> I have a class coming up on that. Uh, and uh, I've been reading uh, a fair amount of Catherine Zonderager uh, because she was on a panel with me and she works in such a different way than I do theologically. And I've enjoyed reading that. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a highly influenced by Karl Barth uh, and, and so forth. So I'm, I'm reading her. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading James Cone a, a, a fair amount on stuff about a cross and lynching tree. I've read that a couple of times now. I, I, th I think that's a very interesting thing. And uh, a, a former student from Union Seminary who was a Katie Cannon student, Angela Zims, who's now uh, the, the president of Colgate Rochester Crozier, wrote a book on uh, lynching and so forth for her dissertation before uh, um, Cohen started talking about that, and I've been reading that. Uh, so those are some of the things. But, <clears throat> you know, look, uh, I enjoy reading, uh, uh, for instance, uh, 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 John DeGrucci on, on humanist stuff, Christian humanism. I think that the South Africans are fascinating that way, especially if you're a Reformed theologian, right? Because they've got a big case of Reformed theology down there. It hadn't always been positive, right? Or anything along those lines. But now he's in dialogue with and others in dialogue with a number of indigenous African traditions and other things trying to ask about a kind of Christian humanism. And I think of that as pretty fascinating stuff. So, well, Douglas Otani. Douglas Otati, thank you for being on the podcast. Go well, ahead. Let me just say I'm also reading Andrew Dawson and uh, <clears throat> I, uh, Davison, excuse me, Andrew Davison, and I've been reading the, 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 the book on participation, and I think there's just a, a, a lot of really great ways to go about being a theologian these days, and I learned from a lot of them. Uh, Andrew, actually, that even, even while we're recording, I wanted to say, actually, I would like to do one of these where we talk about participation in God, your book I think that from 2019. And I would like to do that. And let me just say also with Professor Davison's book, it is systematic, right? I mean, look, 
how many different ways can you argue that people are inherently participatory and you got a participatory world? Well, you could decide that there's one doctrine that does it for you. <clears throat> and sometimes I read some people in the Trinity these days, it seems like that's what they're saying, but that is not what he does. And he's got a series of different doctrines that contribute to this. I think of that as genuinely systematic and, and, and very interesting. So, Well, Doug Otati, thank you for being on the podcast. And um, we're looking forward to more of your work as, as it comes out. And over to you, Andrew. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Doug. I really do recommend this uh, Theology for the 21st Century. And if you're interested in what it means for theology to be systematic, that uh, section, um, towards the, the end of the introduction, isn't it? It is, before, yeah. Before you, um, you uh, dive into uh, creation, is really one of the most detailed and I think insightful discussions of what it means for theology to be approached in systematic. Right, right it's beginning on page 136. Yeah, yeah from 136 onwards. Yeah, that's yeah, very 136, as I would say. Well, well yeah. thanks very much. I mean, that's why I thought that method session should end that way. You know, you should give a kind of, a, a, in a sense, an apology for what you're up to here. And there are certainly other people who have thought that systematics was not the way to go and, and, and wanted to talk about it. And, and really, the people who are talked about there are all pretty much friendly critics. You know, I mean, what they themselves are doing is a lot like systematic theology, even when they say you can't write a systematic. And, and that's a very interesting point, too. And I think with Carl Rahner on, uh, on his uh, first order reflection, what's so very interesting about that is, it reads more like a systematic than other things he wrote. And it also is something that he thought he had to have for beginning students uh, for, in the priesthood and ministry. And I think right there, uh, it pretty much says it all. Even when you don't want to have a systematic, you have to have something like it to train people to be priests and ministers. So. Doug, we need to uh, wrap things up, but I want to say that I think that you have another career um, a promising on theological talk radio. <laughs> well, maybe, but, maybe you should think about trying to find some sort of platform for that. Gary, well, you know, I, I, I'll retire in about three years. I got to think of something, you know. So that, either that, or if, if I were better, I'd try stand-up comedians, the comic stuff. But I don't think I'm good enough for that. I think that, that that's a tough thing to do. Thanks. Thanks to you both. All right. See you. Bye bye. bye. Well, Josh, I don't know what you thought, but it really struck me that here is someone who has spent a lot of time in the church, those years in a seminary preparing pastors at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. I thought that really showed that his interest is in a systematic theology that makes sense in the preaching and teaching and pastoral life of the church. Um, I thought I loved his understatement, you know, <laughs> that if you're going to be preaching and really involved in the difficulties of people's lives that calls for did you say a modicum of coherence um, um, so that that uh, that pleased me as someone who's interested in how systematic theology joins up well I thought the thing that really that sticks in my mind is some of those comments he made about the way in which theology is taught so you know we, last time we had Sarah Coakley talking about criticisms of the whole enterprise of systematic theology she gave us Four and some really good responses to those, uh, but that's really important to hear those, and they help us to keep on our toes and you know do it in a better rather than a worse way. And here he was talking about the ways in which it can it can be presented in in a 
teaching setting in a way that is problematic. So I think the two things that stuck in my mind were one was just teaching things at too much in isolation from one another. So you have a you know a monograph on uh, creation and then something on the doctrine of God and something on redemption. They're all a little bit in isolation from one another. Did, did, I, I, that, that was one of the things that interested me. And then he also said something about um, feeling that you need to cover so many different approaches to how you even go about doing theology that you don't leave yourself very much time to talk about what historically was the nuts and bolts so again god creation sin salvation and so on so i think um sarah coakley gave us four good things to be wary of um i think he's given us at least two good things there yeah, and in, in contrast, you mentioned his book during the intro, the, the more one of the more recent books he's put out. It's called Theology for the Twenty First Century, and it's called a one volume systematics, which is an attempt to bring the full systematic breadth of the Christian tradition into a single book. And I think his book is nearly a thousand pages long, so it's a big it's a big volume. Um, but the idea is that with this one book, you get a, a good treatment of of all the main the main doctrines. Yeah, and 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 in such a way that they can cross fertilize. Mm-hmm. Doug, Doug is a very uh, kind and irenic person, so um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if we talked about the the pros and cons of those criticisms. And I think there's a I'm probably going to say this again and again in this series because it appeals to me. But there's this difference between doing theology sequentially and doing it systematically. And I think his criticism of putting things in these silos uh, is is one of doing theology sequentially rather than systematically to do one thing and then you close those books and start on another topic almost as if you hadn't read the first ones but I think when you're teaching you sort of do have to go through things sequentially it's just that I don't think you should leave it there so um, if we're going to cut our colleagues some slack who have to basically do one thing after another um, it's because you just need to walk students through various topics but one thing i'd say is important is that you want those you want to present it in such a way each topic that it's come out of many years of thinking about how things hang together so you can't teach everything all at once but you certainly want to teach creation in such a way that it's entirely shaped by its relation to other doctrines even if you can't always draw that out all the time like i say you can't talk about everything all at once so but i really do get his his point that if you um but that's such a, da- a danger, isn't it, with system with uh, specialization in the university, that we that we've divided the topics up to specialists, and mm-hmm. there's not so much opportunity for cross fertilization. Yeah, I mean, I think it is as knowledge has just the amount of material has just grown and grown. Uh, you know, fewer and fewer people feel they can responsibly sort of take a crack at the, the whole, as it were. You know, um, and then that second criticism, if I if I have got him right, was um, well, it might be quite useful to sort of make it concrete that that the very strength in theology of recognizing that there are there's more than one way of doing it, and that different perspectives bring different things, uh, means that we spend time introducing people to liberation theology, theology from a feminist perspective. Um, black theologians, um, theological ethics, political theology, public theology. I think that's what he was saying, that um, 
the very fact that we recognize the value of talking about all of these things can mean that we don't spend as much time thinking about God, creation, salvation, sin. And, and I think that he was talking, wasn't he, particularly about what that means for pastors. But the danger is you, you send people out into the world with a, a good knowledge of lots of different ways of doing theology. But um, I'm trying to think exactly what his phrase was, you know, not, not so much of the nuts and bolts, but that probably is, you know, that probably respect, uh, reflects my particular ways of thinking, thinking about things. What I'd be really interested to know is to what extent, if you were to concentrate on one of these approaches, then in a, if you, if you concentrated on it, all the, full range of topics as traditionally understood would come back or whether someone would say no those topics are part of the problem um so mm. if i was talking to somebody who was looking particularly from a feminist perspective would they say yeah if you were to give me a whole course on theology from a feminist perspective i would absolutely with that time go through god sin creation um, um re redemption eschatology and so on from a, with, with with all sorts of particular things to say, uh, but I recognise that you know, given the time, I would want to talk about all of those things. Or might someone say, no, actually, the idea that those are the subject matters of theology is you know, part of the problem. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you know, Doug's uh, point there could could play out in either of those ways. Um, and some people, might, I think, might say as well, well, no, the 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 very approach to theology itself sort of incarnates or represents the liveliness of some doctrine. So someone might say, oh, you know, we're not doing liberation theology as a method instead of, say, eschatology, but it is actually in itself a kind of enactment of what it mm -hmm. means to think in an eschat eschatological way. But they might be questions for, a, for future guests on future podcasts. Another thing that I really appreciate from that... Um, conversation is just how seriously he takes his readers you know he, he thinks that there are a lot of people out there who spend considerable time reading these things they're capable of uh, you know dealing with challenging complex ideas if they're presented clearly uh, laity as much as pastors um i thought that was just really pleasing to hear um and a really good thing for us all to live up to um to, you know taking his, his his readers really seriously on that note i think we can close this episode and we'll be looking forward to uh the third episode coming out uh soon excellent see you then